uh, guys, I was supposed to release something, but I can't remember what it was. I know, release the dogs. Do you mean who let the dogs out? Oh, yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah, that's something else. Perhaps you meant release the Snyder Cut. No, no, we are not doing that. Ah, ah, for sure. Oh, I remember what it was. Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my mythological co-hosts. I'm Jack Olander, a man turned statue, and you would not believe how stiff you get just standing in one position for years at end. Ooh, I can imagine. Yeah. And I'm Chelsea Hollowell, an aging actor who loves to tag along with the hero <laughs> i mean who doesn't <laughs> well guys this week we watched a classic that i'm very excited to talk about with you guys it is 1981's clash of the titans this movie was directed by desmond davis and stars harry hamlin judy bowker Lawrence Olivier, Claire Bloom, and Maggie Smith. Wow. I know a couple of those names. Professor McGonagall herself. Yeah. And the special visual effects for this movie were done by none other than Ray Harryhausen with those sweet, sweet claymation effects. But before we get too far into the movie, I think Chelsea has a prepared and pre-written summary ready to go locked and loaded definitely not right off the dome or anything like that so here we go your summary for clash of the titans 1981 edition yeah so perseus he's the son of zeus right Mm -hmm. and his he and his mother deny were condemned to die at sea because, you know, she was having that baby out of wedlock. I mean, that is very Zeus. So that's just kind of how things were back then, I think. Dick move, King. Yeah. Because he was the son of Zeus, and Zeus took pity on Danai, he worked it out so that Thetis, the lady of the ocean, the goddess of the ocean, would give them safe passage to the island of Seraphos, where they lived in harmony with the people there. The people there just kind of seemed to take them in as some of their own. It was very friendly. So Perseus leads an idyllic life on the island of Seraphos, but he does grow up knowing his birthright, that he's the heir to the kingdom of Argos. Meanwhile, Thetis's son... Calibos is turned into a grotesque, devilish creature by Zeus for retribution of killing almost his entire herd of winged horses. But he's kind of a sexy beast, too. Yeah, he kind of is. He's a handsome beast. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like Beast from the iconic movie. And Beastly. Yeah. And 
So Thetis, in retribution, also curses the princess Andromeda, Queen Cassiopeia's daughter of the city of Joppa, who was due to marry her son Calibos before he was transformed. And so she also is pretty vindictive because her son was punished, but Perseus has gotten to lead this cushy life. So she plays Puck a little bit with his life. And she just fucking transfers him to a theater outside of Joppa when he was asleep out on the beach on his home island. So he wakes up and he's just transported to an old amphitheater near Joppa. Where he meets one of the great characters of the film, Amun. Yeah. Soon Perseus learns of Andromeda's plight. And Amun tells him that there's one more winged horse left in the whole world, and that's Pegasus. Ah, oh, Pegasus. So he captures Pegasus and breaks him in and follows Andromeda with a special cloaking device, a helmet he received from the gods. He receives a lot of gifts from the gods in this movie and just fucking destroys them or throws them away throughout the movie. Or just leaves them behind like his sword and shield. Like, he gets the invisibility helmet and he's just like, yo, I'm out of here! Yeah. And then Amon's like, oh, Ah, these dumbass, impetuous millennials with their forgetfulness and everything. Yeah. So he follows Andromeda on her soul's nightly excursions of force visitations with Calibos. And he learns of their plight and devises a way to defeat Calibos and free Andromeda. So <clears throat> he eventually defeats Calibos correctly recites the answer to a riddle so that he wins Aunt Princess Andromeda's hand in marriage and ends her curse. But her mother is kind of a vain woman, Queen Cassiopeia, and that extends to her daughter, too. So when she's announcing their marriage in the temple to Thetis, she says that her daughter is Andromeda is more beautiful than the goddess Thetis herself, and Thetis fucking eats her own statue <laughs> and starts talking to him. I, I have learned that it is never good to compare one's mortal beauty to that of goddesses. Yeah. It's a it, dangerous game. Yeah, it, it, it just leads to bad times. So she curses Andromeda again to have to be eaten by the Kraken in 30 days and she has to be a virgin. Thetis, if this doesn't happen, Thetis threatens that she will just kill everybody in Joppa. So Perseus doesn't want to accept this. He wants to find a way to save Andromeda. So he goes on an epic quest. He talks to the Stygian witches to figure out how to kill the Kraken. And he finds out that he has to go on another fetch quest <laughs> to kill Medusa and get her head so that he can turn the Kraken into stone. Pretty fucked up when you think about it. Yeah. And so he eventually accomplishes this task. A lot of guards and friends die along the way. And he makes it back to... Uh, the kingdom of Joppa at the last moment, right as the Kraken is about to just fucking chow down on Andromeda. When the Kraken is well and fully released. Yes. He kind of tries to fight the uh, Kraken. He kind of bumbles around for a little bit, 
and then eventually is able to get Medusa's head out of the bag it was in, and he effectively turns the Kraken into stone, and he and Andromeda get married, and they live happily ever after. Let's go with that. Oh, Zeus decrees that there, no more vengeance can be brought down upon Perseus's head. Yo, now that I've won and got everything I want, no more bullshit. At Everything's got to stay the way I want it. At least for Perseus and at least for now. Sure. I mean, that is very Zeus. The, the gods like to exact their petty revenges on mortals, it seems. Oh, we'll be talking about that in a little bit. So that's about it. That's the end there. I glossed over a lot of stuff so that we can tell you all about it in the Delve. The Delve? What's that? That's where we're going next. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Clash of the Titans, 1981 edition. So the lore of this. It's very Greek. Yeah. Well, just like in other myths uh, and so many other instances, Perseus is Zeus's son, born of a human mother, Danae. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, Zeus has a goddess wife. Her name is Hera. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of fucking has to accept that Zeus is always going around on her with those mortal women. I believe we touched on this in a previous episode, The, the Legend of Hercules 3D in 2D. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I believe we also touched on this in Disney's Hercules, which was also 2D. Yeah, but you know what? All these movies, they're all Greek to me. Makes sense. Yeah. Something that we noticed while we were watching this movie is that the Disney Hercules merges the Hercules and Perseus myths together because Pegasus is part of Perseus's story. And so is like going to this kind of cursed kingdom, which in this case is Joppa. I mean, the Greek myths had a lot of a lot of like overlapping themes and stuff. So I guess they just figure when they're creating modern representations of it, just grab whatever you want. Yeah, yes. Horse right. with wings, perfect. Got to have it in all the movies. If I'm not mistaken, they do have a few crossover monsters or creatures in the myths ordinarily as well. I believe Hercules and Jason both fight the Hydra at different points. Oh, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but I also don't think Hercules normally has Pegasus like you're like you're saying as well. Yeah, no. I don't think so. He's more into lions. <laughs> and pelts. <laughs> yeah, inside the pelt. You're right. <laughs> oh, God, I remember the unholy crossover in the Disney Hercules where the lion pelt is Scar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Too bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> so in typical fashion for himself, Zeus had appeared to deny as a golden shower and seduced her that way. And she got pregnant from that. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or if they were just referencing like other things Zeus has done to uh, get freaky deaky with people yeah we were learning about this in the movie in a scene with three goddesses who were talking about zeus's exploits it was thetis 
Hera and Aphrodite who are talking about it. And kind of matter of fact, like, oh, you know, Zeus, he fucks. There's nothing you can do to stop him. You tell him not to, and he does it anyways. Like, it's that's the patriarchy for you. Exactly. Yeah, Thetis said that he tried to seduce her once as a cuttlefish, in the form of a cuttlefish. And uh, Hera kind of just is subtly asking her, oh, did he succeed? Like, you know there's retribution going to happen if she's, <laughs> depending on what she says. And then um, Thetis is just like, no, of course not. And Aphrodite's like, okay, well, what'd you do then? And Thetis is like, I beat him at his own game. I turned into a shark. <laughs> Ain't that fucker. <laughs> That'll teach him. Yeah. And if you'll remember, Thetis is Maggie Smith, so it was pretty great. We haven't told anybody that yet. Okay, well, now you know. Mm -hmm. In addition, the goddess Thetis, you might know as the mother of Achilles from the Iliad and the Trojan War. Classic nice. hero Brad Pitt. Exactly, which we unfortunately did not see in this film, but we really should watch the Troy movie at some point. Oh, God. Yeah, we should. That'd be great. Brad Pitt is my boy. <laughs> Fair. I saw that movie one time, and even when, even with my poor taste of movies being even worse back then, I still hated it. I would have loved, had they changed it, I think, so Patrocles is is uh, Achilles' cousin in the movie instead of his, like, you know, I wish in the movie Achilles would have been really mad. He's like, you killed Patrocles, my booty call, and now you'll pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the weird, like, sanitization of the themes of uh, classical Greek literature and concepts to make them uh, palatable to a heteronormative society really does a disservice to the myths and legends of ancient Greece. Oh, yeah. God. I would have loved to see Brad Pitt angrily read the lines, If I can't clap Patrocles' cheeks, there'll be a clashing of steel. <laughs> 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 or bronze, Amazing. you know, to be accurate. Yeah, yeah, bronze, I think, is more accurate. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the transgressions of Zeus are very much swept under the carpet in this movie, and we are more or less supposed to sympathize with his perspective because Perseus is our perspective character who we're following along. And, I mean, that is a theme throughout the Greek myths, of course, that Zeus kind of just does what Zeus is going to do, and you can't stop him, and... You better just love the people that he loves or things are going to go bad for you. So you're introducing a theme I wanted to talk about. Oh, you're welcome. So let's talk about the patriarchy. Let's do it. <laughs> we'll, we are going to be the first people to ever do this. Right. So it affects their perspective of the myth. And like you said, who we're meant to sympathize with. And how, Poor how... Zeus. He just wants to get his dick wet. <laughs> And how all the other characters interact in the story. So there's an emphasis on the supremacy of sons in these stories <laughs> as a result. Not the son, but no. sons, like male children. Male children, yes. And they are the ones who inherit rulership or wealth. And women are valued only as the role they can play within the patriarchy 
So as mothers, brides, or as an object for adoration, so for their beauty. Or as villains, like Thetis is <clears throat> cast in this film. Yes, but she is cast as the villain out of her feelings of motherhood for her son. So it still fits. Yeah. And in this movie, uh, the women only talk about men when they're talking to each other. So you're saying this movie does not pass the Bechdel test? Definitely not. That's fair. I definitely see what you're saying. It doesn't look very good. But in my mind, I did notice three distinct strong women. Well, I guess three instances of strong women. The first being Andromeda herself, right? Yeah. A lot of times, Perseus is like, oh, I gotta go check out these witches. And Andromeda is like, oh, I'll go. And he's like, oh, I really don't know. It's pretty not safe. And she's like, well, hey, if you're gonna go and, you know, you're my fiance, like, I want to also, you know? And then he's kind of objecting and she's like, you know, I'm actually still your queen. <laughs> so you have to do what I say. And he's like, oh, oh, you're right. <laughs> but much like his, but much like his father, he disregards what she wants. Yeah, I know. That's pretty uh, suck butt. <laughs> but I think the idea that she stood up for herself earned some mad respect points for Andromeda. That's true. I did like that part. There were some instances of resistance to the patriarchy that we got to see in the film. It w One of the ones was with Andromeda. She She does tell him, you know, I'm still the ruler here. You're not my husband yet. So I'm going to get to kind of give orders while I still have that power. Which is also troubling because she is basically acknowledging that once she marries, she will be losing that authority to pass it on to Perseus, who's doesn't really accomplish much up to that point, even. It's not true resistance um, because her power is temporary and she accepts that. She accepts that she needs to marry. She accepts that her power is going to be usurped by the power her husband will be able to wield over her. She accepts her place in the patriarchy, and she's only taking this small bit of temporary power to just be able to move freely in the world where she wants to move, and it's a very small kind of resistance that doesn't... Because of her acceptance of her role, her future role, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Also, she's doing it to try to help, too. Which I think is really nice, you know? Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. The other example I noticed of powerful women in this were the three witch sisters who shared the eye. They also made a cameo in Disney's Hercules. Yeah. But in this one, they were the only people out there who had knowledge of how to defeat the Kraken. And Perseus had to go to them for help, and he needed power from those women. Of course, he did it by tricking and besting them, and being <laughs> kind of cruel to them in general. Yeah, they help him, and then he just fucking shitty, shittily throws their crystal eye, like, where they can't find it. Yeah, I thought it was neat to see some unconventional characters. Well, I guess women are portrayed in witches in a lot of medias, but... I liked seeing the 
you know, powerful mystical women. I don't know. I think it's a cool archetype. I also like that there were women in this movie that people didn't talk about how attractive they were because they were kind of haggish, right? You know, witches and hags kind of go hand in hand. And that was how they were portrayed. But, you know, the value they had was their knowledge, not how beautiful they were, which is, you know, for a Greek movie, unconventional, I suppose. Probably. There's also another example of resistance, actually. Near the end of the movie, when Perseus is going to search for the Stygian witches, he's lost some of his gifts from the gods, and one of them is the helmet, and that's the gift that Athena gave him. And so Zeus asks her if there's anything else she can give him, and then suggests that she give her pet or her owl companion Bubo to Perseus, and she she basically just says never, and she goes to Hephaestus to have him craft a mechanical owl named Bubo to send him down to Perseus instead of her actual animal companion. Now, you guys know me. I love me some Hephaestus in any Greek story. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to see that Hephaestus got a sweet job, like making a steampunk owl. He uh, he reminds me a lot of the one true god, Krom. Right. Yeah. The forge god who lives under the mountain. Yeah, I can see a lot of parallels. Yeah. Maybe they're like drinking buddies. Nice. Probably. Talking about steel. <laughs> the riddles. riddles I don't th I don't think Hephaestus cares much about riddles, but that's so, a uniquely Chromian uh, quality. So, yeah, Athena says as Hephaestus is making the... Mechabubo? <laughs> yeah, that even if God tears down all of Olympus and destroys the world, she's not going to give up her animal friend. Hell yeah. She still has to comply with his wishes in some way, so she's still operating within this patriarchal system, but she finds a creative workaround to her problem. Goddess of wisdom, I mean. Yeah. Classic. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of times in the film when people are trying to reason with Zeus, he's very... Difficult to reason with in the moment he's coming up with decisions, but retroactively he is much more reasonable. An example of this is when Thetis is, like, speaking to him about being merciful to her son. He doesn't do it. No. He's like, oh, sorry, them's the rules. Yeah, no. <laughs> I make them, but, you know, I gotta follow them too. But you just made it. It's true. To be spiteful. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, but later on... I forget exactly the situation, but Thetis basically is like, hey, you remember how you screwed me over? Now it's kind of time to throw me a bone. And Zeus is like, ah, yeah, you right. Do your thing. That's true. He kind of gives her her due, you know? Is that when he lets her, like, destroy the temple at Jopa? Or? Yeah, and give her edict to curse Andromeda again. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Right, yeah, because... Because Zeus wants his uh, his boy to kind of follow in his footsteps of, uh, you know, boning down. <laughs> so I guess this is, like... This is part of the patriarchy I'm talking Yeah, about. exactly. So I, like, I guess that is like what he considers an even, even trade. Like he fucked over Thetis's 
son, so he figured it's okay to kind of let her try to get in the way of his son's desire to marry this powerful woman and usurp her power just for, like, showing up and fucking, like, cheating at a riddle. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of bullshit. I know. We also see, I have one more point to make about this theme. We also see uh, examples of internalized patriarchy in the female characters, goddesses, and mortals of this story. The goddess, like we mentioned, part of this is the women just being totally preoccupied with what's going, what the men are doing, and only talking about them when they're not around. <laughs> and then also showing this jealousy towards other women and just feeling competitive with other women for men's attention or these petty revenges that they meet out against mortals, going for any scraps of power that they can take or exploit any blind spots of the powerful male gods. And um, you don't really get to see this with mortals as much in the film, except that Maybe in the way that Andromeda doesn't see any future for herself outside of being a wife and mother. And so it it's a form of thought control of, of the female characters in this story and in history. <laughs> yeah, this so, reflects a larger real life problem. Yes, so we see that reflected in the story here. Ah, uh, yes. In ancient Greece... There was a wing of the home, at least in Athens, but in many other cities as well, called the Oikos, where women were just expected to stay while men could go outside and talk politics all day. Not a very woman-friendly society, if you ask me. No, definitely not. And their myths, their myths reflect that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it affects our culture because of the... Um, renaissance period when greek and roman literature was kind of rediscovered and heavily influenced european cultures and it's we're still seeing the relics of that in our culture today but i know we've kind of touched on it a little bit and i know jamie really wants to go into this other theme about vengeance and revenge oh i very much want to talk about vengeance revenge justice and drum roll please class struggle yeah they're all interwoven in this story and this is where yeah absolutely and this is where i think a lot of you know touching on the themes we've already talked about a lot of the issues with gender and sexual dynamics in this film this is all interrelated but the the story of this film has a very mixed message when it comes to different power dynamics throughout. So we've got the male and female power differential. We also have the god versus mortal power differential that mirrors the, let's just say, wealthy versus poor social disparity of our real world. Yeah, I could see the correlation there. In this movie, the gods are stand-ins for the powers that be, the authority, politicians, police. The social and economic elite. Yeah, that's a term I don't love to use, but for again, for lack of better words, elites or 
the haves. Right. Whereas the mortals are pretty much across the board to some extent. They're the have-nots. There's kings. There's queens. There's people with some greater authority who can make edicts and have their wishes carried out. But at the end of the day, they are the playthings of the gods. And we're given examples throughout the film of times where, say, a mortal and an immortal, so a human and a god, commit the same crime. Zeus being one of them. Zeus can go philandering all he wants. Nobody can say anything. Perseus's mother is condemned to death for it. And the goddesses kind of talk about other times when a god and a mortal do something together, the mortal is punished, turned into a demon or some other disfigured creature where the god is left unscathed. I just have a quick point to make with that, with your correlation between the gods and mortals and class disparity in real or real real world that reminds me of the way that throughout history and in a lot of cultures today still if there is an unplanned pregnancy or a pregnancy out of wedlock uh it's usually the woman who's blamed and condemned for it not the man right and that's part of the patriarchal system perfect example yeah other things that reflect what happens in the movie or the story of the film with the real world would be the disproportionate punishment of the poor versus the rich. So a speeding ticket for somebody who's working three jobs and supporting their family versus somebody who's wealthy paying the same price disproportionately affects those people. The rich person could probably afford to pay, you know, I mean, we're, when we're talking about like different levels of wealth, might be able to afford to pay any amount of speeding tickets and can kind of just drive with impunity because they know that the law does not punish them the way that it does somebody in a different economic status. Bigger examples would be wealthy people who are able to literally get away with crimes and murder unpunished where you or I would be sentenced to life in prison or, or whatever other level of punishment that we would see. It is completely different playing fields that these people are on. Yeah. If you can afford a high-priced lawyer to get you off on murder and anybody else has to have a public defender, even if they're not guilty of the crime and can still get locked up for life, you're not dealing with a system of justice. And that is a theme throughout the movie. And there's a line, one of my favorite lines, probably my absolute favorite line from this movie, ironically, is Zeus saying that a hundred good deeds does not atone for one murder. But this is him kind of selfishly being mad at the king of Argos for sentencing Perseus and his mother to death because the other goddesses say, oh, but... You know, the king of Argos praises you and sacrifices to you and, like, builds these temples to you. And Zeus is having his little hissy fit. But, you know, in that moment, he has this line that really resonated with me about how murder is the worst thing you can do. And no matter what good you've done up to that point, taking a life is one of the most final things you can possibly do. And it can't be just washed away with your good intentions. But Zeus... 
He loves you. He dedicates his life to you, praises your name, and dedicated his city to you. There are statues of you everywhere. Then why won't he let me hook up with his wife? Hmm? <laughs> it's actually his daughter. It's super problematic. That's something I was thinking of. The fucking king of Argos has his daughter locked away and is super jealous of her being with any suitors. And it's kind of implied that there's something really sinister going on there. Hmm. I don't like that at all. Well, that's troubling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. me neither. I'd rather not have that happen. Yeah. And I do remember that is part of the original myth, too. Yeesh. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think that the movie does an uneven job of addressing these themes. We do have this story about a very privileged young man who is the son of a god, so a demigod, basically, who is kind of in between these two worlds. So, I mean, there's your middle class hero, right? He is in between the powerful and the weak, socially powerful and the socially weak. He is in this kind of rare middle spot where he is comfortable and can kind of play with the lives of others, but can't quite play on the same field as the gods. And he's our prospective character. I mean, big surprise, right? This middle class hero that we see echoed throughout most of film and most of storytelling in our culture mm -hmm. is the one who's lauded. It's the ideal for the masses to... Part of the American dream is mostly being able to be part solidly in the middle class. Right, exactly. That's the most people can hope to attain because the wealthy hoard everything for themselves and are part of the ones that are controlling these modern myths. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I would have much preferred it if, in the end, Perseus would deny the gods would stand against them and would for some reason have to be unpunished for it would have had to would have achieved something that would have given him the ability to speak truth to power but we're kind of again like the story doesn't really do a great job of handling the themes but it touches on them in interesting places like the Zeus quote I was talking about like the overarching theme of mortals being punished for things that the gods that they get away with with impunity. You know, just to touch on that briefly, Hercules is also a son of Zeus, and he's most well known for having super strength, right? His demigodness shows itself in a superpower. And I believe Theseus, another son of Zeus, has like super calculating intelligence, right? But to my knowledge, Perseus has superhuman privilege, where... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say super mundanity. Yeah, he's not, like, the most clever or the strongest. He is certainly very brave. Like, he's not afraid to try and break in Pegasus, even when it takes off into the sky. And he does challenge a two-headed dog, Medusa, the devil man. He is very brave. He's a very American hero and that he's foolhardy to the point where he is willing to do things that should get him killed and yet somehow comes out unscathed. Yeah. Yeah. A large portion of it comes from gifts from the gods, which are only given to him because Zeus wants it. It's not like all the gods are in love with Perseus and like, oh, let's help him out. 
No, I think you hit the nail on the head. His power is ultimate privilege. Yeah, and it works. I mean, he I, I'd say he's got a pretty good heart, considering a lot of the people I've seen in the story. He seems like one of the better people. So if you're going to privilege someone, he's not the worst choice. I mean, I, I another change I would have liked to have seen in the movie would be to ha- have him care about more of the people, though. Like, he seems to have a good heart, but, like, he kind of lets his friends and followers get killed without really caring that much. Like, he's kind of that sad when my favorite character, Thalos, dies. Yeah, the guard who provides exposition for us. Yeah, I, I love that character, and... He dies, and, and Perseus is kind of like, oh, but Thalos is such a good guy. But, like, we don't really feel it. We don't really feel a bond between them other than the fact that they shared some screen time for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't really build the characters up. You know, I actually was surprised he even mourned that character for, a, like, even a second. I know we all really like that character, but I was surprised that there was actual dialogue of him being like, oh, my dude is dead. Yeah. And he was killed by Calabos's fork hand. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that fucking fork hand. <laughs> the most advanced prosthesis for the time. Yes, it was a trident fist. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I wanted to note on this movie from more of a technical point of view Something I I hadn't noticed in previous watches, because I mean, I've watched this movie since I was a kid. But something that stood out to me this time was that it's surprisingly a moody, kind of atmospheric movie, more than a lot of these action set piece movies are. It runs a little bit longer, too. It's, It's close to the two hour mark. And part of that is because it has these kind of long, luxuriating shots throughout it. Yeah. Like, we spend a lot of time, relatively speaking, watching Perseus like approaching the temple of Medusa we have these flyover shots that kind of lets you revel in like the countryside or the islands as the movie is like leading in uh, during the lead-in to the movie at the uh, as the credits are rolling there's these kind of longer the one scene that really stands out to me is when and a scene I really liked when they meet Charon on the river and they they give Charon the coin for passage across this river, evoking kind of like the river sticks, the apotheosis, this journey to a scary place. But The Isle of the Dead. Yeah, exactly. The shot of them getting to the island is a longer, kind of moody shot. That It's an interesting juxtaposition with the rest of the film. And like, it's a very cool shot. And the movie has more of those than I'd ever noticed before. And I really appreciated the visual talent that went into making the film. Yeah. I think what you're saying is really interesting and definitely spot on. I would say it's more of an adventure movie than an action movie, to be sure. Agreed. Because the climaxes are very action-packed, you know, with the with the Kraken and he's flying around on Pegasus trying to save Andromeda. That's definitely an action shot, but a lot of it is sort of his journey and them trying to resolve this curse that's coming about. It's not like he's trying to stop everything by going, killing the witches, killing Medusa. I mean, everyone does die. Sure. A bunch of monsters that is, but like that was never the goal. That's a great point. It really is more about the journey, the adventure, solving problems as they come up, 
a little bit of cleverness here and there to to solve problems, which I thought was cool. I guess we'll have to someday compare it to the more recent remake that, from what I recall, is just a straight-up action movie. Well, since we've covered a lot of the big stuff, why don't we move on to evil, stupid, or misunderstood? This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the podcast where we take a look at the principal antagonist of the film and determine if they were just plain old stupid, or maybe they were flat out evil, or possibly completely misunderstood. And I have a point I wanted to make here. So we could easily say that Calibus is maybe a villain. He's sure. certainly an antagonist in the story. He, he kills my favorite character, so obviously a horrible villain of the worst kind. But I want to make the point that the patriarchy is the real villain of this film. Okay. And life. And... <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's many villains of life. True. I think the patriarchy is certainly a one of them. symbol of one of them, yeah. Or endemic of one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put it all on the patriarchy. There's the patriarchy is wrapped up with all the other terrible monsters that we need to overcome. It's true. Yeah, like systemic racism. <laughs> exactly. So, They're related, but different. So Calibus is kind of a victim himself as a member or as being somebody who's embroiled in this patriarchal system. It doesn't mean that his actions are forgivable. Far from it. But... It does mean that we can show some understanding for how he got to be the way he is. Um, so I would say he's more uh, misunderstood. I mean... And he, that the patriarchy is evil. He's still a dick. He killed the winged horses. Yeah. So he has grown up in this system of toxic masculinity where he thinks that he is all-powerful as a male ruler and that... You know, he can do no wrong. Everything out there is for him. The only solution for a bad guy who rules a kingdom is a good guy who rules a kingdom. Yeah, I know. Uh-oh. <laughs> I see what's happening here. <laughs> so he is really a victim of the system himself. He is a member of the part of the system that is powerful, but he can't see any kind of life for himself outside of this system either. And the way he acts is in large part an effect of his environment. And he, he was never shown another way to be. I mean, if he was in a more egalitarian system, he might have turned out differently. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we can make that case for a lot of people who end up being terrible monsters. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like the movie is more making Thetis out to be the principal antagonist. I don't know. She's one of many gods and goddesses who seek revenge against mortals for small slights against them. And it's a part of a long line of the gods and goddesses doing this to mortals. It's not really... If you're going to cast her as a villain, you'd have to cast all of the gods and goddesses as villains. Well, I mean, I think that that goes back to the theme that I was talking about earlier, though, that 
the gods are separated from the systems of punishment, much like the wealthy elite are separated from the systems of punishment in our own system. And in that case, I'd say they're pretty stupid. Well, they know they can get away with it. Yeah, but they're lazy and they just want to use their powers to control mortals instead of like doing any actual work for themselves. They're just lazy and stupid and live off of the hard work and feed on the praise and devotion of the mortals. I think you're onto something there where the gods are stupid, right? Because they use their power very arrogantly. And they have a lot of pride, and even small slights, they totally smite and just rebuke them, right? They're very aggressive, and they really do kind of bite the hand that feeds them in attacking the people who give them praise, like you were saying. So I could see an argument for the gods being stupid, but as well for Callus, what is his name again? Calibus. Like Caliban, but bus at the end. Right. And Calibus is also a demigod, right? Right. He is a demigod of Thetis. So that could affect the type of person he is. And the reason why he's killing these winged horses is because he adopted this sort of arrogance, the world belongs to me sort of thing that the gods pass along. Because that also does kind of show itself in Perseus, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, of course I can marry this queen. Of course I can do all this, this, and this. And he's making the assumption that he can do anything anyone else can. And so Calibus, it might be in his nature to act in a similar way to the gods. And this cruelty is sort of an inherent evil that was passed on to him. And in a similar way, I would say that evil was passed on to Perseus. It just so happened to manifest in good deeds. But I think if they were in each other's shoes, things might have ended up differently. You know what I'm saying? Mayhaps. That's a good point. So, yeah, I think um, we nailed it. Like always. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like society is the villain again. Society! Damn! Damn you, society! <laughs> I mean, we're anthropologists. It's hard not to see that. <laughs> it's hard not to see society as the villain when you're an anthropologist. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, something Jack... Cultural anthropology. Yeah. Something Jack said kind of, like, stuck with me about how, to some degree, the gods are biting the hand that feeds them. And that is, I think, a similar issue with a lot of times when wealthy people try to push for laws that hurt the poor because their businesses are completely dependent on the other people, on people to depend either to buy their services, to buy their products, to maintain their jobs and do all the work that is necessary for large companies or for, you know, whatever the, the role might be to have such a, dismissive view of people in a different socioeconomic class is incredibly self-defeating for the wealthy. That's true. Much like for the gods to discredit humanity. I mean, oftentimes the story of mythologies is that the gods kind of gain power from these tributes that they're given. Right. So Zeus destroying a kingdom that celebrates him 
or Thetis, you know, threatening the people of Joppa that worship her, that worship her kind of defeats their own power system. Right. And it's kind of easy to see how the powerful can be overthrown if they don't treat the people around them nicely, or at least maybe that's the thing that could happen. I don't know. <laughs> what could it possibly mean? <laughs> but Chelsea's right. I mean, the villain is society and obviously evil and stupid. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, on that note, why don't we head to the smithy? Welcome to Ye Old Smithy, where we forge a rating for Clash of the Titans after we each share an epic moment or feature. Chelsea, would you like to go first? I suppose so. Even though we do this for every episode, I feel like it kind of got sprung on me. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Sneak attack! Backstabbed! Uh, I guess an epic feature would be Medusa's artistic design i love the way she was her clay figure was designed and um the way it moved her snake body and her snake hair how it was constantly writhing and um the scales that made up her skin and every once in a while her tail would shake and you'd hear this kind of rattle in the background that was really creepy and for the rest of the time, she was pretty quiet, and that was even more eerie. So I thought that that was a really great artistic design for her character. I'm just going to go middle of the road and give this movie 5 out of 10 swords. The messages are complicated, but it does make you think critically about these systems that we live in and hopefully gets you to question them or at least you might question them through this discussion um so the reason it got a middle uh middling rating for me was for the art direction of the film um which was revolutionary at the time I'll say yeah and it's well known for the sets and characters and what they were able to accomplish with the cinematography and movie magic. So I appreciated that part of the film. So yeah, 5 out of 10 swords. A respectable rating. Jack, your epic moment and your rating from 1 to 10 swords? Oh, ho, ho, yare, yare. In fact, I have an epic feature this week, not an epic moment. I'll allow it. <laughs> oh, thank you. My epic feature this week are the epic transitions that happen between shots in the film. A lot of time they'll have the face of someone suddenly freeze frame and transition slowly, like fade into the next shot. Or they'll take a similar image from one shot and have it fade into a similar image in the next shot, like a tree becomes a post or something like that. And... It's a little jarring, but so unlike anything we see today or have seen in most films that it stood out as being incredibly unique and cool. So it really added to that atmospheric effect you mentioned earlier. 
where it freeze frames on like Calibus as it like fades away. That that made it so much more sinister. But uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. Nice. A rating for this movie? Um, I'm gonna have to give it six swords myself. Bronze swords, bejeweled, bedazzled <laughs> <laughs> Aphrodite swords. You know what I'm saying? The reason for this is. I love the practical effects. The outfits and claymation meant to reflect the outfits were so cool. I like a lot of the practical effects, like the semi-transparent soul, stuff like that. It was very interesting. The smoky, steaming blood, the scorpions that grew big, (laughs) you know. It was visually very striking. In addition to that, I feel like a lot of movies these days that would be similar to this like jamie said would be action movies and they have a tendency at least in the last i'm gonna say 10 years to feel very scripted you know what i'm saying Uh, formulaic yeah and they kind of lean on the crutch of having crazy visuals over having intricate plots or characters i don't know Something like this gripped me a lot more than a lot of modern action movies. But uh, it did have a lot of issues with, like, you know, kind of the messages it was portraying, like Chelsea said. So if it weren't for being such an entertaining movie, I would find it more problematic. But, you know, that's the reason a lot of problematic things happen in society, because they're too entertaining for people to complain about them. So... Perhaps... Six out of ten. A solid rating. What about you, Jamie? What about you, Jamie? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) My epic moment is something that gets introduced and resolved very quickly, but I very much appreciated it, and I wanted to know more. And it's right when Perseus wakes up in the theater, and then he hears this spooky ghost voice threatening him. And it's like, oh, what's going on? I literally just got shivers. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that it's Amon, his friendly actor buddy, trying to uh, make people think that the amphitheater is haunted. And Perseus asks, like, why do you do this? He's like, oh, well, just to kind of scare people away who want to, like, come into the theater after hours. So that means he has, like, a consistent problem with people coming into the theater, and he has created this theatrical experience to kind of like scare people away i thought that was brilliant and very actorly and i really appreciated that i also really appreciate amon he's a great character but yeah when we introduce him with this kind of ghost grift that he's come up with i just fucking loved it and i got a kick out of it and i wanted to know more about why he felt the need to do that yeah and kind of like dig deeper into that It, it kind of usurped the the main story for me at that point I just wanted to know more about Amon keeping his theater safe from, like, young, I guess, young couples or something. I don't know. Whoever's coming into the theater to make trouble. Yeah, right? But as far as the rating goes, man, that's a tough one. This is such an iconic movie. I'm going to give it six out of ten swords for being so influential, for doing something that nowadays we would think would be pretty novel like being more of an adventure movie than an action movie for setting the groundwork for so much other fantasy fiction that would come in the years 
following this. It has a cool visual style. I really liked those long, luxuriating shots, like long and luxuriating for an action-adventure movie. There wasn't quite enough character development to create a really interesting story, but like it does what it can with kind of introducing ideas through dialogue that the audience can fill in the blanks. It doesn't hold your hand through the whole story. You kind of have to pick up what's being said and what's being done and piece together some of the implications yourself. And I really appreciated that. And I'm really looking forward to juxtaposing this with uh, the remake someday. Yeah. Which has, I believe, the subtlety of a massive gas leak explosion. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, six out of ten Greek bejeweled bronze swords. <laughs> nice. So on that note, let's head to the bounty board. fitfully in your bed sleeping yet also dreaming unsure what the line between fantasy and reality is outside you hear a cawing birds feathers flapping and a tinny sound of metal setting down on your balcony you stand from your bed and look down upon your body unconcerned you walk to your balcony and see a gigantic chicken sitting on the edge with a cage sat upon the balcony on the banister of your balcony you see an impossibly large chicken sitting watching waiting and you notice he set down something a sign that says bounties this week we want to thank our patrons yeah thanks mickey and casey for being some of the first pioneering patrons for our show. And we wanted to invite others to join them in this adventure and make a pledge to us to help keep the show going, keep the lights on, and, you know, just to show solidarity with your friendly neighborhood satirists. <laughs> and... You'll get some interesting things as part of your patronage as well. We do some exclusive posts, usually us in crazy costumes. You'll get to vote on a episode that we watch every month, so you'll get some influence on what we cover in the show. At higher tiers, you get to make actual requests for specific things you want us to watch. And we also have exclusive content like monthly outtakes and a special episode where we cover a fantasy show like The Witcher, which we did in an earlier special Patreon episode. So yes, uh, join our growing community of patrons and get access to that and show us your love in that way if you can. But thanks to everybody just for listening. We We love all of you. That's right. We love you all. Let's rewrite some history. Welcome to Rewriting History, the part of the podcast where we think about Clash of the Titans and then come up with a sequel, a reboot, a spin-off, or a crossover. 
And I think Chelsea has an awesome idea ready to go. <laughs> well, I have the seed of an idea. I thought we could do uh, a reboot set in the modern era. I love it. And maybe focusing on a female character like uh, Andromeda. And maybe call her Andy? Andrea. Andrea. <laughs> Andy is good, too. I like Andy. Maybe Andrea and Andy is her nickname. That's as far as I got. I was hoping we could massage a little bit out of that idea. All right. All right. One thing we could do, just as, you know, a lore thing, is we could add more gods to it, right? Yes, love it. Because a lot of what we see in the movie is... Zeus is giving a bit of prophecy through, I think, Athena's shield to the main character, right? Whose name is definitely on the tip of my tongue. Perseus, even. Perseus, right? <laughs> Perseus, even, right? He's giving a lot of prophecy to Perseus. He's the, he's, you know, prophecy Perseus shield. Yeah, all right. So. <laughs> Who would be named Percy in this version? Yes, Percy. Yeah, yeah. Funny you should say that. Oh, is that where they got the Percy Jackson idea from? That's actually the side quest. So bet you're such a trap and keep it hush. But, oh. <laughs> but um, uh, in addition to that, right? So Zeus in the film is kind of the one taking the position of the prophecy speaker, right? But historically... The Greeks believed that Apollo was the prophecy speaker through the prophet at Delphi. So, the oracle, even. The oracle. Yeah. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. it might be interesting when we see shots of the gods. You know, when Zeus is about to take his wrath out on Thetis's son, Apollo could be like, you know, Zeus, if I may be so bold... I think there may be some unseen consequences to that action. And Zeus is like, nah, I'm pissed. And Apollo's like, you know what? You're totally right, dude. <laughs> so I think we need to have their Mount Olympus be like a high-rise office building. And then the gods are all wearing like fancy suits, like Armani suits. And, they're and CEOs. They're, they're a council of CEOs plotting... The um, precisely <laughs> the to control the lives of the the, the poor's. <laughs> so Apollo is like their <laughs> Apollo is their speculation, like financial speculator. Yeah, yeah, he, just their general analyst, you know. <laughs> and uh, all the same, when Thetis keeps trying to enact revenge, he could be like, you know, the numbers don't look good. <laughs> <You know. laughs> on that plan you know it, I, I don't know if that's in the budget Thetis and she's like no no it's fine <laughs> he's like alright I guess if you want to liquefy your city state that makes sense your yeah. division <laughs> yeah, exactly. all, the, all the characters are like working for the company yeah yeah. if you want to yeah if you want to liquefy that branch that's fine yeah, liquidate stuff like that. So it would be nice to see him, Liquid and then the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> there. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
In a similar branch, if we're adding more gods, you know, Amon is an actor, right? Mm -hmm. And perhaps, you know, he's sponsored or produced, you know, his works are produced by Dionysus, a god who in history was popularized from the theater in ancient Greece. The party So it makes sense why he'd be sponsoring an actor, you know, or a a director, you know, Amon. And, uh, you know, Amon deserves some flourishing, you know? Yeah, he does. So it might be nice to throw him a bone. Like, that could be how he got a really nice theater. He's like, oh, the company, they're my producers. Nice. (laughs) Oh, and that could be Perseus's excuse, too. He's like, oh, yes, my producer. And then he's like, oh, yeah, my dad funds me. And he's also funding my brother, but he's out in college. And then you see... The Hercules 3D, like the Chad Hercules timeline where he's in college. It's not very important to the plot, but it's there. That- Just the crossover is there. Yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to The Legend of Hercules. To- it's our episode number three. <laughs> well, that early? Damn. Yeah. That's right, Jack. That's a good crossover. I love it. Yeah, he could be at Percy's wedding. Oh, yeah. So Perseus is like a trust fund kid. Yeah. But I don't want to focus on him. He's the supporting role. Yeah, sure. But like he's there. Like, and we kind of know about him and and what's going on. Like yeah. he's he's the CEO's son, so he's important. But would this be Andy's a, a much more important? <laughs> it is now <laughs> <laughs> because Andy's the main character and. <laughs> He's like her love interest, but it's an it's still it's still gonna be an adventure. It's yeah. an adventure rom com set in the modern day in a corporate run world, right? So our world. Maybe they c- uncover some kind of like corporate <laughs> corporate espionage. Yes, and they have to travel to different countries to try to help infiltrate other corporations <laughs> but i i still want to lean into the action adventure aspects of the movie i don't right. want it to be modern like where everything is just mundane and boring i want it to be like corporate espionage actually involves like sending soldiers to like take over and like there's there's battles there's literal battles oh. between companies oh that's great so like everyone still has like a sword and, and shields and stuff oh <laughs> but that makes so much sense if the gods instead of just like totally being business owners they're like each business owners in their own right and they're forming some sort of like illuminati sort of secret society That's what I was thinking of, too. And they could literally be the gods as well. And kind of, like, do a little bit of Shadowrun. Shadowrun meets Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love this. This is great. Okay, so all all the gods are CEOs of different companies who, like, come together as this cabal. And they're working. I mean, it's perfect, right? They're working at their own games, but they also have to kind of balance this negotiation between each other yeah and so they are trying to negotiate for this deal because they found out about this um ancient piece of technology that they realized they can exploit to make a new form of 
magical and mechanical technology combined. Okay. And um, Andy finds out that it could actually be used to do something similar, but to like provide power for everybody in her home city, like maybe New York. Okay. Because everything's like set in New York City. So a little sustainable energy. Yeah. I still want to have a Zeus like cover up pregnancy angle though. Right. Like with Percy with Percy. Yeah. Where like he's kind of having to like wheel and deal and like make concessions because everyone's like, well, Zeus, we know what you did. Like we know that Percy is your son, so like it's a cover up. It's a kind of a cover up where like they all know it, but they can't let that get out to the public. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And because Andy has this idea, she becomes a business competitor to the gods. Oh. And it's Thetis who's like, oh, I can handle this, right? Yeah. Hires a hitman. Oh, God. <laughs> the Kraken. That's his nickname. An That's assassin the called the Kraken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's also yeah. like a sea monster. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that too. I'm just imagining like Davy Jones from Pirates in the Caribbean 2 and 3. Oh, you know? God. <laughs> octopus face man. Good old yeah. octopus face man. So what are the different companies that the different gods own? Obviously, Zeus is, is the head of an energy firm. Right. Oh, that's so good. Artemis is like an... Artemis is an arms dealer. Yeah. Athena is an information broker. Dionysus, uh, you know, Dionysus owns, like, a movie studio, of course. Oh, I was going to say, like, he's a liquor magnate, but I kind of like him as a, as a studio executive. That's pretty good. Yeah. A brewery owner also makes quite a bit of sense. He could be kind of like the playboy. He could be both. Yeah. 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 Kind of the Tony Stark. But yeah. I, I mean, not not the weapons dealer, but you know the other parts of Tony Stark. <laughs> what are the Paul? I mean, Apollo does the speculation, right? He's like a, a an analyst. Yeah, a he's he has an online horoscope website. <laughs> That's always accurate. Yeah. Wait, or or is that, <laughs> or is that what the Stygian witches are? <laughs> What's that? They are like the. <laughs> Online horoscope read astrologers. <laughs> New age okay. astrologers. Okay, so Apollo's the analyst. The the Stygian witches are the horoscope yeah, that's writers. Good. That's perfect. Poseidon is a shipping magnate, yeah. obviously. What does Thetis do? What is Thetis's company? Because she's another ocean goddess. Yeah, maybe she controls, like... Um, <laughs> Oil oil rigs. Maybe she's... <laughs> yeah, ocean liners. An oil executive. Okay, yeah, I like it. That's good. Yeah. Oh, this is this is fantastic. Yeah. That's why she and Poseidon have to have like a good working relationship. Mm -hmm. They have all these uh, agreements and deals between the two of them. Yeah, keeping everything flowing because <laughs> they're both gods of water. Yep. Oh, guys, this is fantastic. I know. So... Andy is working against the gods to try... That's the adventure part of it that Jack was talking about, where she and Percy team up. Percy finds out about his upbringing and how Zeus screwed over his mother and paid her to keep it quiet. 
So he wants to bring his father down or at least expose the truth. And um, that's why he teams up with Andy and they go to get this technology before this evil council of gods can get to it. And they want to use it for good, you know, the the, the two heroes. Egalitarian purposes to right. protect humans, to help the quote-unquote lower class. Right. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, guys, I'm ready. Let's let's get this produced as soon as possible. It's good. It's lit. <laughs> well, we better hurry into our side quest. This is the side quest where we suggest another piece of fantasy media to check out after you've watched Clash of the Titans and our reboot, Company of the Titans. <laughs> Titanic mess. <laughs> Wasn't that, didn't that already exist? Wasn't no. that just the movie Titanic? Oh, yeah. You're right. I'm just kidding. I never. Wall Street Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the owl of Wall Street. Yeah. Boobo down. Nice. <laughs> I think Jack has a side quest ready for you, everybody. Oh, yeah. You may or may not have heard Jamie mention it in the last segment, depending on whether or not it makes the cut. <laughs> yes. But Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson the Lightning Thief series. Well, the first book is called The Lightning Thief in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. But it is a modern day Greek setting where the gods exist. Oh boy. And in fact, live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> in high rise office buildings. <laughs> they live at the top of the Empire State Building, in fact. I have series before i'll tell you <laughs> which is why i wasn't confirming or denying anything in our rewriting history but but i knew <laughs> but ours is original yeah. ours is original but uh yeah of course the main character is named percy jackson he is a demigod and he goes by the nickname percy and <laughs> not by his full name, Percy Jackson, Percival Jackson. No, exactly. But it does a pretty interesting job of mixing the Greek myths with modern day, explaining why the average Joe doesn't really know about why Greek mythology is real. You know, a lot of people think it's fake, but it isn't. And and why the Christian God is a lie. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they actually addressed that for, like, a second or two. But it is six books long. It does a pretty neato job of expanding the world, kind of explaining how things came to be. It plays around, interestingly, with some mythological ideas. And, you know, it's no secret who... Percy Jackson's dad is, but hint, hint, it's not Zeus. You probably know already. But <laughs> It's not Zeus? I would have thought it was Zeus. It's not Zeus. Zeus is everybody's dad. It's true, but not in this one. In fact, he goes to a camp full of other demigod children. 
and each of the children are sorted into houses. Kind uh not Hogwarts style. Uh-huh. But based on who their divine parent is. Okay. So there's like a house for children of Athena or like, you know, children of Ares, you know. So so what you're saying is the Greek gods fuck. They do, and that could also be a name for the series. <laughs> the Greek gods get around. Nice. Yes. But it's definitely a Greek modern coming of age story. And uh you might have a good time. Yeah, I, it sounds really interesting. I've never read it. You you convince me. I want to read it now. Yeah, give it a shot. The audiobooks are pretty good. Nice. Chelsea entering the YA market. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. All right. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Anytime. And on that note, we'd like to thank you all for listening this week and staying along to the end as we discussed Clash of the Titans. As always, you can check us out on social media if you want to see our sweet, sweet memes for every movie we watch. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, Chelsea's got the information for how you can do that. <laughs> You can email us at swordsandsatire at gmail.com if you still do that email thing. And um, for everybody else who, you know, has moved, has upgraded <laughs> from there, I guess. Is that what you call it? <laughs> you can catch us on social media. I feel attacked. Uh, through Instagram or Facebook or even Twitter. And, uh... Yeah, give us a shout out. Check out the memes. Let us know your thoughts uh, and ask us your questions. That all sounds like a bunch of great ideas. <laughs> a swell plan. It is. Well then, until next time, hail, hail Crom. Hail him. Okay.